0: Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, joining us now for episode 23, where we are actually going to be talking about COVID-19 for the second time. This is COVID-19 Mark II, and we're, we're very excited to, to talk about this again. During our last episode, we talked about the fact that, uh, that political battle lines were being drawn between the Republicans and the Democrats, and, and that this issue had become more and more Polarized between those two sides. You know, and we, we'd like to say now that, uh, that that has since then diminished and has become a much more reasonable issue that people can talk about and discuss and, and move together towards solutions. Unfortunately, we cannot say that. It has since then gotten much worse. It has become so incredibly polarized that it's turned someone. You know, like me, who actually enjoys talking about politics and issues and ideas into someone who's afraid to even talk about covid with with people that I know because of how polarizing it's become,
1: and as we mentioned before, those battle lines seem to have been drawn immediately prior to good data, and we we promise the is we got better and better information. We would revisit this subject. Now, there's still some things that will remain to be debated about COVID-19 and about the effect of the political decisions around it and the details that's going to be discussed for decades to come and maybe never worked out, depending on, you know, maybe never arrive at at a consensus that satisfies both armies. But at least for a while, we want to address you as if as if we were reasonable people in a reasonable world who could have conversations about things without feeling the need to defeat one another. Now, there are a number of examples we could think of of people who have crossed the lines of their particular team, the battle lines, and uh, have been deemed as traitors and sacrificed to the cause. And we're gonna, we're going to trust that anybody willing to listen to this is going to consider the ideas on their own merits, and be able to set aside their biases. So the first point we want to make is one we made in our original episode.
0: Yeah, we just want to recap what we talked about there real quick before we proceed to to some of the new information that we now have.
1: We stand entirely behind the claims we made in the first episode. The primary point we made in that episode was discussing risk and what it means to live in a world where every choice you make is a trade-off and where everything you do comes with some risk. Um, To choose to do one thing means you can't choose to do others. You have limited time, you have limited resources. As such, you live in a world where every step you take can be, has its own perils, has its own ups, has its own downs, has its own benefits and costs. In the world today, there are a thousand, a thousand, I picked the number a thousand as if it's really big, there are millions, billions, probably <laughs> countless, probably countless ways that your life and your health and your well-being are threatened at any given moment. There there are a thousand diseases out there right there, are thousands of of ways you could have an accident as you jog down the street or as you drive to work. One of the most dangerous things that the average person does on any given day is drive to work or drop their kids off at school. Uh, car accidents are a are a major threat. Um heart Issues are another huge one, but there are so many of them, and they're all going to be relevant at different times. And, and depending on where you are in life, they, the risk to you may be more or less. And navigating that risk is something that's so natural to life that we do it automatically. We're uh, we, we are often making decisions about these things, even unconsciously. And COVID-19 is another risk. And it's one that we, we counter at the cost of other risks, and that we focus on at the cost of not being focused on other risks. And as such, it's a trade-off. And maybe that's a trade-off that's worth making, and maybe it's a trade-off that isn't. And maybe it depends on the person. And this is where we went with our original episode, it was that ultimately, at the end of the day, what what is worth risking for me is going to be different than what's worth risking for you. Some people get a serious thrill out of doing things like bungee jumping right now i have no idea what the actual threat of something you know the actual risk of doing that kind of thing is but there, there are people who are thrill seekers who who live for the kind of moments that others would deem too risky and they would count themselves as as not really living if they completely isolated themselves from such risks there are other people who can tolerate very little risk these people are constantly looking over their shoulder. They're double checking as they leave the house to make sure they unplug the toaster so it doesn't spontaneously explode while they're gone. And they have all kinds of things bordering on paranoia that, that we might, that other people are going to deem as irrational, but it's a different tolerance of risk. And likewise, when you look at what's valuable to individual people, that's going to play a huge role. Each person values things differently. They might value the speed at which they get to work a little bit more than they value driving extra carefully, right? Because anytime you get into the car, you could decide that you're going to go five under the speed limit and that you're going to look both ways five times before you cross a road. Or you're going to. Are you saying you lane. don't do that now, Dan? <laughs> I don't. Or they're going to change a lane. Only after there are no cars in sight and there haven't been for a while for fear that they might, there might be someone there in their blind spot that they didn't notice or a motorcyclist, you know, that, that's, that they can't quite see, you know, all of these are possibilities that you could choose to do if you assess that risk and the value trade-off to be worth it. But when you get into the details of someone's life, the risk they're assuming when they go to work when COVID-19 is out there, someone, if you were to say, let's not let the government decide, let's let people decide for themselves, what, what some people would be comfortable with in the decisions they would make would vary quite a bit. And maybe it's because they don't think the risk is very high. Maybe it's because they're extremely healthy, or maybe because for their age category, the risk is low, or maybe it's because it's much more risky for them to go without an income than it is for them to get coronavirus. Right? You're weighing two bad things there. No money with the threat of with with the safety of avoiding coronavirus, hopefully, and or money with the risk of getting coronavirus. Right. This is a trade off. And some people, it's not hard. Right. Maybe maybe they're old and they're very wealthy. And it's really obvious to them that it would be a mistake for them to continue to do normal activities because of the risk but somebody who's young and very healthy who's desperately trying to get enough money for something particular and who's on the brink of not having enough as it is for them maybe the numbers look different right this this risk assessment at the end of the day is going to be individual and unavoidably individual because of the the circumstances that go into it and the value because assessment of the people who are looking at it
0: absolutely and so so now looking at that months later months after that first episode we want to take a look at, at what that risk is now especially as we have more data after after that first coronavirus spike has come and gone and and now we're coming into to to another another covid wave you know as as it were we can look at at the data from that first wave and gain some information about the risks people are facing. And everyone, of course, talks about the fact that, you know, coronavirus is is much more dangerous to those who are older, right? Everyone's Everyone's aware of that fact. What's crazy though, is when you look at the actual numbers, how much of a difference there is between younger people and older people in terms of risk. You know, so this is the data that we've gotten from the CDC's website. And of course, you'll notice right away that the numbers are lower than the the reported numbers that everyone else uses. And that's because the CDC waits to confirm these numbers. And so they're always going to be a little bit lower. They're going to be a couple weeks out of date. And we talked about that last episode. So, so bear in mind with that.
1: Yeah. And by the time you hear this, it'll also be we'll be looking at a date that's over a week and a half old.
0: Bearing all that in mind, you know, when you're looking at... At the total deaths on the CDC, we're looking at around 240,000, which is obviously a lot. No one's arguing that. And as we look at this, we're not arguing that COVID isn't something that's real and that's that's killing people. So please don't think that for an instant. But what's crazy is when you look at the age breakdown, you know, when you look at the fact that from ages 1 to 4 and then from ages 5 to 14, the number of deaths from COVID are minuscule. Ages 5 to 14, only 42 people in the United States have died from COVID, 42 of the 240,000. When you look at ages 15 to 24, it's 428. Compare that with ages uh, 75 to 84, 64,000 people have died from COVID 19. In fact, if you look at ages 65 and up, you'll actually have the majority of coronavirus deaths, with, with the, each of those 10 years having 51,000, 64,000, and 74,000 deaths, respectively. The majority of deaths are in the older generations. And for those who are younger, the numbers are so incredibly low that so many other factors like getting in a car accident become a much higher chance of of killing you and so if you're someone who's who's looking for for what the best thing is for you to do as you navigate risk with COVID-19 of course you know the first thing you want to look at is your own risk and depending on your age that's going to vary greatly someone who's 15 and someone who's 75 shouldn't be responding the same way to this in terms of how much they consider that risk and of course whether or not you're interacting with people who are older is of course going to be a factor and these this data doesn't take into effect the underlying factors beyond age things like pre-existing conditions, especially respiratory ones, diabetes, any of these other factors are not being considered. And so those are something you want to take into account as well, because those have a significant impact as well. If if you're a healthy 20-year-old, the odds of you dying from coronavirus are so incredibly low that almost everyone who does die from coronavirus makes it onto CNN because it's so unusual
1: <laughs> it is it is and and every time that happens you can see a uh, you know it's reinforcing the idea that this is a threat to everybody and make no mistake it is a threat to everybody but how large is that threat well the difference in threat level between someone who's 15 to 24 and somebody who's 85 plus is 620 times right 620 times the threat to somebody who's 85 or older than it is to someone who's 15 to 24. And the difference is even greater if they're younger than 15 to 24. Which, as he said, suggests something that, that should be obvious, that this, that this poses almost no threat to very young people, whereas it poses a massive threat to very old people. And that's, that's just looking at age, as you said, just breaking down by age, a total of 58 people between the ages of one and 14, whereas you're talking 70,000 plus for people 85 and older, this is not a threat on the same scale. And that's, I think that's counterintuitive for people. or Hopefully that's as surprising to you as it was to us. Cause when you, as you said, when you hear that it affects the old people more, I would have thought maybe it's two or three times as lethal. It's not. It's more like 600 plus times as lethal, you know, and depending on which age category you want to compare with which age category, it's going to be, it's going to be probably less than that. But when it's hundreds of times, when you can take, when you can take the risk of somebody dying from it and multiply it by a factor of a hundred or more, you're talking a massive difference, a massive difference, which makes considering the lethality rate of COVID-19 as a whole an actually very useless statistic because it's extremely different depending just on age and as you said you factor in more things like like pre-existent conditions that difference is going to become even more pronounced to the point that if you are looking at a child that's 14 years of age or younger and they are fairly healthy they're not among the least healthy in a group of say 10,000 kids the odds that they are are going to die of COVID-19 is thousands of a percent. It's extraordinarily low. In fact, in fact, that's not taking into account if they're healthy. You take into that account if they're actually healthy, and it gets even smaller than that. Which is to say that for most people of ages 24, even going all the way to 24 and younger, the flu is a more dangerous threat. Now, I know that when I say flu, that a lot of people are going to be upset because it's the flu has kind of become a buzzword in this in this discussion between the parties on these issues. But when you look at the ages, the flu is going to be far less lethal to older people than COVID-19, but it's going to pose a much more lethal threat to children. And you can go and find interesting breakdowns of these statistics on the, the CDC and other, other websites and look at these numbers for yourself. But the relationship is massive. I mean, when you look, feel like I could just list these statistics over and over again and and hope that it sinks in the difference here in the threat level, (laughs) because it it matters to me when I look at, I mean, I have two little kids, I have two little boys. And when I'm considering what I should do and, and the risk that this poses, knowing that it's hundreds of times less likely to affect them than it is to affect old people makes a difference in my decisions. It,
0: it changes your choices.
1: It does. It changes what I'm afraid of and what I'm not afraid of. It also emphasizes the fact that you ought to be extremely careful if you do associate with someone who would be at risk, because the difference is not small. It's not It's not a few multiples. It's, it's hundreds of times more lethal, which puts a heavier burden on people who interact with older people, right? And with people who might be exposed to it. But myself, I, having almost no interactions with uh, older people during this time period that really changes the window of decisions that I
0: can make. So now what we want to really focus on with this episode and something that we mentioned that we'd like to talk about is about how the country responded to COVID-19, the procedures that we put in place and compare those with with alternatives and kind of just take a look back at what's happened. And the first thing we want to do with that is we want to talk about what the standard procedures are in terms of a pandemic.
1: And hopefully this will be as revelatory to you as it is to us. I didn't realize that there, I mean, of course we assume that there are standard procedures for dealing with a pandemic. Pandemics are not new. They're new to our generation. They don't happen very often, but they are not new to the scientific field of study. And as such, scientists have spent a great deal of time putting together ideas about how to address them.
0: And in fact, when we look at standard procedures, we're actually going to draw some information from the World Health Organization's response strategy that they announced, that they published in the beginning of February of this year, specifically about coronavirus. Because we were trying to think about what information we'd like to use, because of course, as it is with any response plan everyone has a different response plan so we decided to make this one as specific as possible so that you know because everyone of course is going to respond with oh well that's the plan for you know (laughs) a a flu pandemic or a different virus pandemic we're talking about covid which Uh is different
1: right which you can then go and check against older general
0: pandemic guidelines if you would like to yeah, so this response plan that that the WHO came up with was specifically about coronavirus, but is of course based upon, as Dan said, the years of of pandemic response plans that have been fined for a long time. But their plan can basically be summarized into into several different categories. And it has to do with number one, preparing and organizing so that you can have the healthcare system can be ready to respond to this new virus. And then the second thing is in tracing and track those who get the virus and those who are exposed to the virus so that they can quarantine and prevent others from getting sick. And then working on finding things that can help mitigate the effects of the virus and potentially come up with a vaccine or some other solution so that the virus becomes more survivable. And what you'll of course immediately notice is a lack of something. And it's a lack of talking about things like requiring masks and social distancing in the general population. And it's talk does not talk about any kind of general lockdown. It does talk about quarantine, which is very different from a lockdown because a quarantine is specifically about quarantining those who have or have been exposed to the virus. To prevent it from spreading to others, not locking down those in the general population who have neither been exposed to nor have the virus. So obviously, the this procedure that they propose, which is based on standard pandemic procedures, is very different from what we did. In fact, it's I mean, it's not very different from what we did. It, it is what we did in addition to many other things you <laughs> right. know we did prepare right. the healthcare system you know we worked on you know everyone talked about ppe for healthcare workers so that they can be protected mm-hmm. because that is standard procedure to make sure healthcare workers don't get sick we worked on our contact tracing we worked on a number of tests we had and then of course working on the on the vaccine so what we want to talk about is is why this is the standard and A lot of that has to do with with how a virus works.
1: So one of the things that's interesting about viruses, and specifically we're going to look at the flu again, because it's the most common virus, you know, we experience it every year. And so looking at the trends that it has can be helpful to the degree that something is going to parallel the same behavioral patterns. And for reasons which we'll discuss more as we go, COVID-19 appears to be mirroring some of the patterns. A standard viral spreading is seasonal to a large degree which is not to say it disappears in the summertime, right? It doesn't. You can get the flu in the summer, and when you do, you feel like you've been robbed. You feel like something's <laughs> something in your life is you've been cheated out of something, right? <laughs> Especially if you're a kid and in summer vacations going. It's it's injustice. But in the winter it's going to be worse. And and you expect this baby. You expect the influenza or the flu too spread during the winter seasons. You expect it to die down as it gets warmer and as you get more and more sunshine. And it's so predictable in its spreading that you can actually predict to a large degree the number of deaths that are going to occur each year. And they call these, you know, they they have a baseline where they try and measure excess deaths. And that's a weird term, (laughs) excess deaths, but when you have something as regular as the flu, you can start to get a regular charting of the numbers and how many people are going to roughly die each season. Now, some years you have bad flu seasons, and some years you have weak flu seasons. And years where you have a lot of excess deaths, meaning it was it was a bad flu season, a lot more people died than expected, then you can predict with pretty much, you can, it becomes very likely that the next year you are going to have a weaker flu season that's going to kill less people. And the opposite is also true. If you have a weak flu year, one year, then the next year is likely to be worse. And this is an interesting thing that you can, you can actually chart and is, is very consistent aspect of virology, that it comes and goes with the seasons, and that weak seasons are followed by strong seasons and strong seasons by weak seasons. And the reason for that is pretty straightforward. This, while the viral strain changes and adapts, making it so you're never permanently immune to the flu, you do get temporary immunity to the particular strain that's spreading, so that if in one year so a lot of people get the flu they're likely to have some resistance to the flu next year which means there's going to be fewer people exposed it's not going to spread as much and it's not going to have as much of an effect
0: now of course covid is going to behave differently because unlike the flu there's a
1: we didn't have a last season
0: <laughs> yeah there is no last season this is this is the first time and so there is no there is no built up immunity And so that's obviously going to have a different – so it's going to be a little bit different. And that's something that we saw with this first wave because what happens with an incredibly contagious virus like coronavirus, which we've seen is incredibly contagious, is that it is going to simply burn through the population until it reaches a certain threshold. Once a certain number of people have been exposed – when you don't just have one case, but you've got hundreds or mm-hmm. thousands, mm-hmm. it becomes almost impossible to stop to isolate. And this is significantly different from other diseases that we've been worried about, like Ebola, for example, in Africa, where there were a very limited number of cases that they were able to isolate and prevent from spreading on a wide scale. Yeah, the contagious,
1: the level of contagiousness is just crazy. It's incredibly COVID-19. high. Yeah. It's
0: incredibly high with COVID 19. And so it becomes very difficult to do anything but let it burn out. And it's something that that you may be surprised at when reading the Who's response is it talks about the fact that even doing things like stopping air travel between countries is not necessarily worthwhile, that it's not even necessarily worth doing except in special cases, because of how contagious it is and how fast it's spreading, that you're not going to be able to isolate from it.
1: So what you can do is you can limit the mobility of the people who are most vulnerable. And at this point, I think it's common knowledge that COVID-19, if it wasn't from the statistics we mentioned earlier, the COVID-19 is going to wreak havoc in nursing homes and places like and, that.
0: And it did during this first wave. And it wave. did,
1: right. It did. When it got into a nursing home it was terrible and the fatality rate was extremely high a lot of those people are 85 plus and so according to these guidelines what you want it to do when it burns through the population as brad was saying is not burn through the vulnerable people right you want it if it's going to burn through the population you want it you want to reach that level of immunity necessary to really hinder the spreading by having it burn through the people who are not going to be killed by it, or or are least likely to be killed by it. Luckily, COVID-19 has a real sweet spot for that. It's not like you're just half as likely to die if you're young. You're, as we said, many, many times, hundreds of times even, less likely to die than someone who's very old, making it a very low, somewhere between a tiny threat and a non-threat for certain age groups. And if you then take the most vulnerable of those people out of the system as well and isolate them, per se, you have them uh, take, you know, the kind of precautions that most people are taking right now, you have them isolate. You have them not going to school and not going to these other places. Then as the virus burns through the people who it's extremely unlikely to harm, then we can get to that point where the case is turned down and getting to that point rapidly but not in a pace that would overwhelm the the medical system is the primary goal of pandemic guidelines as we have known them from the who reference that Brad cited to the past ones from organizations in years like 2019 those are the recommendations you're going to find with no lockdown
0: yeah and and here's an analogy for for pandemic response it's very similar to say a hurricane response plan where when a hurricane comes in the plan is not to send uh send troops out to the uh out to the shoreline to try and quickly build build walls to stop the hurricane to stop the waves and to stop the wind from coming in and causing devastation because the understanding is that no matter what we do this storm is coming. This storm's going to hit. So instead, what we have to do is respond as effectively as possible to help people weather the storm. And it's the exact same with this virus. We cannot stop the virus from from coming. You know, and and we tried. <laughs> yeah, we tried. And it, and it we tried and it didn't, and it and it failed because it's just simply not how it works. It's about as effective as trying to stop a hurricane but what you can do as dan is saying is things to help mitigate it and the thing that's interesting is the fact that in many ways the effectiveness of these lockdowns and mask mandates have been hard to see it's been hard to see the effectiveness of them a great way of of pointing that out is take a look at the covid case spikes in your area and then compare that with your government's response in your area to COVID-19 and try and see the correlation because it's going to be very difficult to look at that rise, that arc, that increase in case and then decrease in cases during that that curve of coronavirus in that first wave and then see how your government's response, in many cases, the stricter lockdowns, the mask mandates occurred after the cases had already begun dropping. Yeah. There's very little correlation between government restrictions and the case counts.
1: Yeah. There are a couple studies that point out the, the lack of correlation between the two. A lot of the times we've, we've assumed in a lot of cases that it was the lockdowns that stopped the spread, which is what turned the numbers down. But as you said, when you actually look at when the lockdowns come into play and the trends that are happening, that those do not line up. In fact, the turning point came before the lockdowns were put in place in so many cases. And when you realize that what's happening is that it's burning through the population, that begins to make sense. That in a lot of these cases where there were, you know, a record number of cases every day and, and there was a, a serious problem with the number of cases that then led to stringent lockdowns, The trend turns first, then the lockdowns come later, and it doesn't seem to affect the downward trend. It doesn't seem to increase it. It doesn't seem to to turn it in any way. Which is not to say that lockdowns or mask mandates have no effect at all. It's merely to say that the larger trends that we're looking at don't seem to be explained by them.
0: Yeah, The primary cause of the rise and drop in these case counts is not lockdowns, is not mask mandates, but is instead something else. And what we're arguing and what the evidence what the evidence clearly indicates is that the real mover of that is actually the virus itself and how mm-hmm. the virus responds to, number one, burning through a certain percentage of the population, and number two, the seasonal nature of the virus, that as summer... Started As it started warming up, the case counts dropped, and as we've approached this winter, the case counts have gone up again.
1: Learning these things has been refreshing for me <laughs> because I've, we've looked at this virus for a long time. I mean, there's lots of information out there. There's lots of trends. Um, there's lots of data about you know, the threat it poses to you. Um, recognizing the level of risk that it poses roughly for you and for your family is really helpful. Recognizing that the broader trends can be explained by standard viral behavior is helpful. It's at least helpful for me in getting the big picture. To be able to say, okay, I can see that the trends here, that it spikes, it's extremely contagious, it's very difficult to stop. It spikes as it burns through a, a whatever threshold of the population is necessary, which may even vary from population to population and then it starts to trend downward, and then you get a small amount of of cases that are fairly steady, and then thinking even more bigger picture with the seasons, over the summertime, it goes down a ton. Especially there over the summer, you get a lot of the mask mandates and some more lockdowns during a time when the cases are extremely low and not increasing. But even during the summer, the virus is not completely no threat, right? It's still there, it's still having an effect, it makes it really hard to look at the data. Like if everybody got it at the same time and you could look at the same trends in every state and the same trends in every country, this would be much easier to sort through. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. But you have to consider when is their first exposure? Because their first exposure is going to be very different than their second exposure because it's going through with no immunity and it's got to get to that threshold. And then you could say, well, as we hit winter this next year, which we're getting into right now, we expect the cases to increase because this is going to be a part of the seasonal illnesses. And as these cases increase, depending on if you are in a place that has already had it, or if you're in a place that's getting it for the first time, that's going to look very different over the next few months.
0: Yeah, the mortality of that second yes. of that wave is going to depend whether or not it's the first or second wave.
1: Yes, yeah, so places that have already had the first wave right now that are getting a second spike, are going to have a much lower mortality. In fact, in some of those places, the mortality is extremely low. Some people are looking at it, and this is something that again, we're gonna have to wait on perfect data that comes later, or at least better data, we'll never have perfect data, but data that comes later. But in a lot of these places that are getting it for the second time, the fatality seems to have dropped truly to rates more comparable with the flu. And that would make sense of what we know of viruses, right? Having already had it go through the population, you're going to have some exposure to it. A lot of people are going to have immunity to it. And as they get it a second time, you're going to get a weak flu season. You're going to get a weak season of this virus that's going to balance out in some way, that initial part where it tore through us, where we had no immunity, no resistance. I just want to articulate again that the goal of pandemic guidelines, as we understood them before lockdown started to become popular. The goal of a lockdown originally was to allow people the time necessary to assemble the the physical tools, the hospital equipment, the PPE necessary to address things, and at times to avoid overwhelming the hospital system. That is not the goal that it's being used for now. Lockdown somewhere over the course of this of our approach became no deaths are acceptable. Thus, we have to keep everybody from getting the virus. But when you look at the threat rate it poses to different people and weigh some of the costs that we're going to consider later.
0: Combined with the difficulties of actually preventing people from getting the virus. Combined
1: with the seemingly ineffectiveness of these things. Most cases, it was a the trends turned down seemingly because it burned through the population and or because it became summertime, and that's what you'd expect from a virus, that decision becomes very hazy. In fact, it's possible that lockdowns are actually causing more deaths by COVID-19. And here's, let me explain how that could be. If what you do is you say this is extremely risky to a certain group of people, those people should isolate. Those people should do what they can to avoid getting COVID-19. But the people to whom it is not so dangerous should be exposed to it. What you can do is you can have a controlled burn, right? The the virus can come through the population. It can affect the people least likely for it to be fatal. And then the other people, after it's gone through the population, can return. The people for whom it is most lethal could then re-engage with life with much less risk. And this is particularly important because often those people unavoidably have interactions with, with people, right? So you can only isolate them for so long. They're never really isolated. They're interacting with people, doctors and things unavoidably all the time. So if you can get quickly through the population that is not vulnerable, that is not high risk, then the second wave when it comes is not going to have that spreading That the first wave did. It's not going to be as likely to get to the vulnerable people. Because that's what this, that's what any strategy addressing COVID-19 needs to address. How do you protect the vulnerable? If you start saying what we need to do is protect everybody, then that burn is going to go through part of the population, old and vulnerable and young and not likely to be harmed. And then it's going to come back in a second wave and go through them again because there's portions of the population that never got it, who are young and healthy, and they're going to get it and they're going to end up passing it on to people who are vulnerable. It'd be much better, at least in theory, right? How this actually plays yeah. out. <laughs> this is, this is, again, this is not our theory. This is, this was standard pandemic idea was that you, you want it to burn through the population that isn't going to be most affected by it. To protect the people who are.
0: Now, the reason this idea hasn't gotten traction and the reason this wasn't executed is because of – well, it's because of a number of reasons. Number one, as a people, we are very averse to death. And we we are always concerned about deaths that could have been prevented, right? Mm-hmm. And that's something that, that you've always seen in the United States. That's something that we've seen with – with how the news portrays unfortunate things that happen. And there's always the reaction of this cannot happen and it must be put to an end. Yeah. You know, we have no acceptable tolerance for death. And so the second problem is there was a misunderstanding of how the virus works. And so there was a thought, there was an idea that took hold. And the idea was that these deaths are preventable. I mean, listen to what Joe Biden said during the election when he talks about all these deaths. He says these deaths didn't have to happen. And that's very interesting because scientifically, looking at all this information, looking at all this data, you know, me and Dan said we're going to look back at it. I can't think of a way to stop these deaths from happening. Like even (laughs) even if you have complete control, I just don't see it happening. And neither did – the World Health Organization, when they came up with their pandemic plan and all the pandemic plans before them, because that's just simply not how it works. There was that misunderstanding of what was even humanly possible. And then the third was the political incentives, that the government, knowing those first two factors, that people didn't want anyone to die and people believed the government could stop people from dying, meant that the government, as far as political incentives go, had only one clear choice, and that was to do everything they can to appear like they're stopping people from dying. And so, of course, that's naturally what happens, is now all the government, the the politicians are doing everything they can to appear to be stopping the virus. And you can look at it now, because many governors, many politicians do argue, hey, the death count is right now in the 200s of thousands. If we hadn't locked down, if we hadn't done mask mandates, that would be two or three times as high. And so those are all the lives that, they, that they've saved, hypothetically, even though they have not done any studies to demonstrate that fact. They, they have no evidence for these claims. It's just speculation.
1: But what you, we do have is many, many years of dealing with pandemics around the world and the science that has gone into studying them that concluded that lockdowns were not a good choice. I don't know how surprised you were, Brad, to find that (laughs) I am still reeling a little bit from the fact that the WHO and the CDC had guidelines that suggested these things before the pandemic and that we've since changed our procedures, Uh, that the evidence pointed towards these approaches and that then We are now doing something different. That should be common knowledge. That should be common knowledge, and you can verify that. You can go look at pandemic procedures and how to address them from documents that are older than this year, or even as recent as Brad, the one Brad cited, of February.
0: And it's interesting to see, you know, the WHO, for example, as their story changes as time goes on, as you know, groups like the CDC. That these organizations that have a strong relationship with these governments, with how people are reacting to this virus, and all of a sudden that playbook is forgotten, and now the CDC and WHO all strongly encourage lockdowns, mask mandates, anything to slow the spread and to stop people from getting sick. Yeah. And it's interesting to see that, and the reason we're seeing that, I think, is because once again we talk about incentives. These organizations are working for people. They're working for government organi- government bodies. They're they're working for for grant money and for funding, and right. and so those who are countering that argument do not get any of those things. And so, if you want to be if you want to be successful, if In in terms of these organizations, you need to get on message. I mean, you can see that politically where you have governors like Newsom and Cuomo, California and New York governors who obviously have gotten a lot of flack from the right, which is for them is is almost as good as as campaign donations. Right. You know that the more they piss off the right and stand out as these people who are taking a stand and want to save lives, they have become large political figures who are going to – their careers have benefited immensely from not just this outbreak, but their specific responses to Mm -hmm. it because of how they have gone on board. And that's something that we've seen across the board. It's very interesting. It is
1: interesting. And we've given this disclaimer before. We probably gave it all even earlier in this episode if we haven't. We state we're we're not virologists, right we don't study this stuff for a living, but we can read data, and there are two explanations for this data that are out there right now, one of which I didn't hear until just recently, which is the one that we're presenting here, that shows you the seasonal behavior it shows you the the trends that burn through, and it is actually the theory that is advocated in pandemic guidelines by <laughs> by the scientific organizations until we got into the middle of this one, at which point they, they changed. Now, I'm I don't I'm not an expert in the science. We've looked at a number of studies. We've, read, we've certainly read a lot of art- articles studying this. But if you're listening to this and you're wondering which of these is accurate, please go and look at the guidelines prior to 2020. Go and compare these and look at the trends in your area and see which one seems to be able to explain the facts better. And weigh this for yourself. Make your own call. But what we are going to assert and say is is factual is that as this moves from the field of science into the realm of politics with political incentives, political decisions, and political justifications, crap happens. <sighs> that is into our realm really? of expertise. <laughs> and... And... As Brad said, the, as Brad was suggesting there, there is not a fear in the world that a politician can't take and benefit from. And if you if you are a politician and somebody is afraid of something, you win, <laughs> right? You can you take that fear, you explain it, you find you find jarring examples of it, and you play it up as much as possible. And you you make it sound as desperate as you can because all of that increases the money to your bureaucracy, if that's what you're doing, you're a bureaucrat, or to your, your campaign donations if you're a politician who actually runs for office and those things. These fears, the incentives begin to change as soon as it moves from the sphere of scientists and peer-reviewed journals and the search for knowledge there to the realm of government. And too often, they're holding hands. Right. These are, these organizations are not as separate as we could hope. Often their funding <laughs> depends on the allocation of political groups giving grants to their groups, right? in which case their incentives begin and end poor from the beginning. And this is not a knock on science at all. I don't, I don't mean this to be an attack on science. It's the attack on politics. <laughs> it is meant to be a, a condemnation of politics in case you didn't Notice, as I'm sure everybody has governors that they can point to who they think are the devil during this time period, (laughs) as the political incentives push them one way or another, depending on their party affiliation or depending on any number of other political variables, right? So we mentioned, if I can predict what you think about the coronavirus based on your political alignment, something is wrong. And that whatever that thing is, is still very wrong.
0: So one thing we want to clarify is, of course, as you hear all of this and we talk about how the effectiveness of lockdowns is, is not nearly as high as, as it's estimated to be and about how the, the real explanation is, is about the virus itself and how it responds to, to a population, a lot of you might be asking yourself, well, even if the lockdowns aren't as effective as we thought they would be, isn't it worth it to at least try these lockdowns? Try the mask mandates. You know, I mean, you've heard it, you know, wear a mask save lives. Because even if it only saves a handful of lives, that's still a handful of people who are alive who who wouldn't have been otherwise. Mm-hmm. You know, even taking in everything we've said, there's still a chance that these lockdowns and mask mandates can be saving lives. And so why not do it? why not go for it even assuming that our model is correct you know what what is there to lose and so we want to talk about that because something that we don't talk a lot about here are the unseen costs of the lockdowns and we're not talking then this first one we're not even going to talk about economics yet we're talking about other unseen costs that are so unseen that they're that they're they're rarely brought up um a few of those are uh, mental health, domestic abuse, which of course have been have been talked about. Um, the incredible increase in uh, in delayed medical services. This one alone is very interesting, and I'd like to expand on it a little bit. A lot of people understand that because the hospitals are are full, some things are going to be delayed. But that's not the complete picture. Because of coronavirus, a large number of elective procedures, were postponed, which meant that even though the hospital had the capacity, had the staff to do these procedures, they they didn't do those procedures in order to prevent people from getting COVID, and they're like, okay, I was elected. Procedures doesn't really matter. Let me give you one example of an important elective procedures, cancer screenings. Cancer screenings are incredibly important and something we don't think about because it allows people to get to find out they have cancer before they have serious symptoms and to then actually stop the cancer early on yeah, and well, prevent them from getting seriously hurt yeah. while well, you can still do something about it. And these many months of delayed cancer screenings means that in the next years more people are going to die from cancer because of all these missed screenings and that's just one example of something that's that's been put on hold that at, at first seems like not a big deal but is actually going to cost a signip, a significant number of lives people are going to die because these cancer screenings have been put on hold um another example of of that is a uh, is weakened immune systems isolating at home staying at home not going outside not mingling with other people is actually detrimental to our immune systems our immune systems are strengthened by exposure to things and without that exposure they become weakened i mean even just the reduced exposure to sunlight that one fact alone is going to cost lives people are going to die Because they're going to be more susceptible to illnesses because of that one factor that's been changed, not because of COVID, but because of our response to it. And then, of course, there's there's the economic effects. And of course, everyone says, well, what's more important, money or people's lives? And of course, people's lives are more important than money. Obviously, if I had to choose between a large amount of money or my family's lives, I'd choose my family's lives. But the decision is not that simple. Every time unemployment increases, there's a corresponding increase in drug addiction. This is, once again, just one example. And that corresponding increase in drug addiction is going to result in not just broken people's lives, but it's also going to result in increased deaths and other ramifications that are hard to see, right? And that's something that happens in not just drug addiction, but in many other areas, as unemployment increases, as poverty increases, as people are laid off and lose their health coverage that they had working for companies they did. A lot of people aren't going to find other health care coverage. A lot of people aren't going to apply for for government health care, even if they're able to get it, because a lot of people, when coronavirus hit, just hunkered down and didn't do anything. You know, I, I waited months to renew my driver's license because I didn't right. want to deal with the bureaucracy when half of the government was shut down their elective services. And and those are real consequences that have an effect not just on Amazon but on ordinary people's lives. Yeah. it's a, It's affecting people, and it's going to affect people for years and years to come. We can't give you numbers of how many people are going to die from this because we don't yeah. know. We don't know how many people are going to die, and we're not going to know for years, but we know that it's going to happen. This is real. Like these these deaths, even though they're harder to see, doesn't mean they're not happening and doesn't mean they're not going to continue to happen. And so to argue that we might as well lock down and and do whatever we can is not accurate. And for the record… In terms of, of the masks, I'm not saying that people shouldn't wear masks. No, what we're talking about is the government restrictions that are negatively impacting people without clear benefits.
1: Yes, without clear benefits and, and obvious trade-offs that they're going to have. And as such, it's, as, as you talk about that, there's, there's one effect. There's a lot of ways you can think of this. Uh, the saddest thing I've seen during this pandemic was uh, a protest – where a bunch of people in a nursing home wouldn't go back to their rooms, and they all went outside, and they had made signs, talking about uh, things like "let let us see our families," things like that. Um, you think of the the personal cost to people who can't, in hospitals who can't be with their dying family member or whatever it may be. Um, these things are. They may not be measured in deaths directly, but the point of life is not to live. The point of life is to pursue happiness. It's to find, in some ways, it's a question you answer yourself, right? But whatever it is, it's never merely living. And as such, you use, you use the stuff that's produced, the wealth to pursue that thing. Often wealth, we're not talking like, extra nice vases right that can sit in your sit on your <laughs> wall that's not what we're trading in exchange for lives what we're trading is things like your kid being able to go and learn karate yeah right during this time and you being able to be to go in and, and actually be with someone who's dying
0: or in many cases your kid being able to go to school at all <laughs> right and, right, to, and to see trade-off. kids his age to right. hang out with their friends instead of being at home all day without that human connection. That's a real cost. That is a real
1: cost. It's a and it's a cost that isn't going to be measured in lives. And these are all different costs that are incommensurable in some way. You can't compare the loss of an education to the loss of the loss of a year of education to the loss of the ability to Go and do some other thing necessarily. There's there's no there's no one to one ratio that allows you to compare different goods in the world. Convert them. Yes, yes. You can't turn all these into to dollars per se and measure them that way. But what you can say is that by closing everything down and by shutting things down, you have, in many cases, destroyed the things in life that make life worth living for people. And to do that to save a life is one thing, but if if the evidence starts to tip to where it becomes, as we think it has, sketchy at best, where you're not sure if it even is going to be better, and it could be making things worse, but it's having some impact, but it's not the primary driver of events. That seems, as we said, to be more the seasons and the it traveling through a population already. Um, all of this begins to say, well, at what point do we want the politicians making the decisions for us, And at what point should we be making the decisions for ourselves on an individual basis?
0: So in conclusion, what we want to instead paint is an alternative response to the pandemic. We're not just saying this is what should have been done eight months ago, but we're saying this is what we can do right now to respond to the pandemic as the cases increase that can be as effective or most likely more effective than what's been done while avoiding so many of these negative detrimental side effects so of course the first thing that we'd recommend is follow the pandemic playbook that's been in place for a long time you know and and do those things that that have been done you know make sure that we protect the healthcare system you know contact trace quarantine those who are sick Having people who are sick stay home is effective. And then, of course, quarantine and and strongly encourage those who are most at risk to isolate in any ways that they can. But then, instead of locking down, open up, allow people to live. And then, and here's something that we're so surprised is so rarely talked about by these government agencies – who want people to weather covid it's something that's never brought up that should be and something that was that was pointed out by someone we're going to talk about in a little bit that could be incredibly effective and that's encourage people to build up their immune systems exercise programs dietary programs um, educational information a lot of people don't realize and I didn't realize this I honestly had no idea about this that if you exercise every day if you use cardiovascular exercise every day and improve how you're eating, the odds of you surviving a viral disease like COVID go way up. It's, a, it's crazy how much of an influence it's that an has increase, yeah. on your, your, your survivability system, yeah. and also how much of a, of a physical toll. The disease has on people, and that's something that the government could have been pushing that people would have listened to. You know, you go back eight months ago, people were scared, people were ready to listen. You look at what people have
1: sacrificed.
0: Yeah, and what if we had done something else? Yeah, if
1: you had implemented programs where people were meeting in the park to exercise together or something like that. Yeah, it's interesting, and you could have think of the 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 way that spins it. This is a fight where. The current advice is to cower in your room and to not see anybody and to wait. Whereas you could be actively trying to be healthier. You could be assessing the risk for the people you associate with so that you can make smart decisions about them and about yourself and about how you should behave in reaction to this. It seems, it seems so self-evident when you think of it but you should know to what degree this is a threat to you. And if the degree is small, you should behave differently than if it's enormous. And if the difference is 620 times as much, you know, that's a, that's a huge difference that you you should act on. You should behave differently depending on the level of risk it is to you. And there is some benefit to you becoming immune, because then you can interact with other people without risk. Then you can spend some time maybe with a, if someone needs to take care of an elderly person in your family, it could be you. And all of those are personal decisions of risk. I'm not recommending you do one thing or the other.
0: And that's where the government really could have stepped in and taken a leadership role without having to lock down is in is in absorbing and disseminating all this important information and actually focusing on the data and the science and using that data and science to provide people with the information they need to make the right choices instead of insisting on a fear-based campaign.
1: And we hope this has been helpful to you. Hopefully this helps you make better decisions about the risk for you, yourself, and your family, and those that you associate with. And hopefully this gives you perhaps a better theory that it explains the data more fully than these other ones and allows you to understand what's happening and allows you some uh, ability to judge the political responses that have been made. And as governors and others react to the incentives, both of their parties and of the general fear to exercise their power, which they're always, almost always happy to do.
0: And, as Dan said earlier, we are not experts. Um, a lot of this information, you know, we've we've searched all over the place, reading lots of different documents and things. But someone who really helped open our eyes to this alternative theory is is a man named Ivor Cummins. And I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. I have
1: no idea how to say his first name, but uh, ivor i v o r Ivor. ivor.
0: But he's someone who's dedicated himself to this subject this year and has a lot of information. He talks to a lot of other very intelligent, educated people about this subject, has a lot of sources that you can look at. So if you're interested in learning more about about this alternative theory and some of the things we've talked about, um, go ahead and check him out. He's got a website, thefatemperor.com, that has a lot of information about this and other health-related topics, which... Isn't obviously our normal cup of tea, but is is definitely interesting.
1: He has the benefit of not being American, which means you don't have to determine whether you hate him based on your political party. You can- <laughs> yes, he is he is not a Republican <laughs> I he's or a Democrat,
0: Irish. but instead <laughs> is Irish, which is something totally different. Sorry.
1: <laughs> he's usually looking at data in Europe.
0: Yeah, he spends a lot of time looking at uh, how Britain has responded in some of that data. And so you can take a little bit of that party polarity out of the issue and just focus on the data on what's actually happening and what we can do and what we should do to navigate that risk and make the decisions that are best for us and best for others so once again thank you guys for listening and i think it's been a really good episode and we look forward to talking to you guys again next week till then